But let's go back and revisit uh, where we left off. And of course, the conclusion was that Jesus had arisen. He had made himself evident in a stroll that he took with a couple of guys. There was the message of evangelism presented to the women who adored him and who were able to be the first newspapers printing that press. They gave oral proclamation that Jesus had arisen. It was to be believed. And of course, from that point on, everybody had to exercise and move in faith to receive what they said and to act on it believingly. So kind of like that as well in this world today, we proclaim a risen Savior, but there are those who even aware of it, having heard the word, now need to make an obligation, shall I walk in faith? Am I going to be one of those who deny the evidence that abounds? Or am I going to be one who surrenders uh, everything that I have held on to, to follow the one that undeniably is making himself ever present in my life. The things that I feel about life in my discouragements, he comes along and encourages me. Didn't know that was Jesus, but I do know now. The things that I don't deserve, all of a sudden I'm realizing I'm receiving them because of Jesus. That's grace. The things that I have escaped from rightfully should have been a consequence in my life, and I've been spared. That's the mercy of God in Jesus. The things that at one time caused depression, anxiety, a heavy heart, and all of a sudden it's replaced by the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. That's a work of God through the Holy Spirit. He's making himself manifest to you in a vital and critical way that turns you towards him and turns your back on the world. So these are the things that we understand are part of a vital relationship with God. And as a result of that, now when we get to move back into the scriptures or project ourselves forward in the scriptures, and forward means, by the way, that it's a living word. So though we do look back on a historical document, things that have actually happened, we project ourselves forward in its meaning, relevancy to our lives right now. That's why all of us are amazed at how God continues to speak to us in such a consummate way, clearly directing our lives, giving us the benefit that what we often say were those guys back then, he gives to us now even in greater measure. And so that's kind of where we are right now. Well, without further ado, let's take a look at what I believe are some wonderful pictures that help, again, I think bring to um, a greater richness in what these people who were a part of seeing the Lord in sacrificing himself on the cross and then waiting in faith until he came out of the grave and the implications of what they went through and what they did in advance and while they waited and ultimately when he satisfied their doubts in his presenting himself to them. So the area that I'd first like to go to would be in Luke chapter 7. It's looking back very early on in Jesus's ministry, his public ministry. But what's fascinating is there is a woman in this discourse that has understood from afar and from obviously a deep grief in her heart of who she is, what she's been labeled. And we see an act of worship that just last week we also saw. It's two different pictures, but the concept is the same. In fact, if we had to anchor this in a title, it would probably be if love is the spice of life, then spikenard is the spice of love. So you can put that into your journal. You can kind of ruminate on it poetically right now. But if love has been called the spice of life, then spikenard in the scriptures is the spice of love. 
And I think that this is a meaning right now coming out in this text. Let's go find it. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And if you hear the turning of my pages, then maybe that comforts you because you're still turning your pages. And that's okay. We'll get there together. In Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 36. We're going to walk through this up to 50. So we're going to be doing a pretty quick pace right now. It's 11 o'clock. We've got some area to cover. Let's do it. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. This is Jesus being invited to a home. Now this is a good thing because the Pharisees, by and large, didn't like Jesus. This is a heart that's being converted. The evidence of that is that he's opening up his home, which for him will be a problem. We're not told who this Pharisee is. We're just told that something has extraordinarily happened beginning to touch his heart. And he wants to now um, oblige and being able to have a closer um, connection with the Lord. Good thing. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Fellowship about the table. 37, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Let's camp there. This is kind of a men's meeting. In fact, I will tell you substantially, it's a men's meeting. No woman permitted. Her passion for the Lord is evidenced right now in what we have heard she brought. And it should ring a bell because there is a woman who has been named in the scriptures, her name being Mary, who we find to have adored the Lord, loved him, sat at his feet. And now we hear a woman quite on the contrary, somebody very different, somebody with a deeper right now exercise of selflessness and even in the um, what you would call the provocation of judgment moves to a place that the welcome mat would not have been available except for the presence of the Lord. And notice what she does when she comes in to this house. As Jesus is sitting at the table, she brings in this alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And because we know that this parallels another flask that also was alabaster and filled with spikenard, we're going to make the presumption that this is that which is in that flask. Something to understand about spikenard, and we'll go to a passage of scripture that identifies it. It was the costliest and probably most precious of all fragrant oils. And it seems to be linked with especially love. And the women actually that would have it have their hearts set on love. Could have been myrrh, could have been frankincense. They are resins that also will give an oil, an essential oil. But this is remarkable to me because it seems to be linked with love. It is the spice of love. It is saying in one sense that everything in my life, she, that has been misguided and invested in men who have spited me, used me, that I've allowed to, if you would, mischaracterize me, I found one now that's worthy of everything that I've been saving up for. She's pronounced a sinner, which means that very likely she had been engaged in prostituting herself. But she now does something exceedingly glorious. She prostrates herself. She comes behind the Lord with this flask of oil that for her would have represented at minimum a man's wages for an entire year. So men or women, think what you could make in an entire year. Put it in an alabaster box, this stone carrier that's sealed and saved for the day of your wedding to be given to your husband as an endowment. 
And that's what this represents. Everything. Ultimately, her heart and desire and passion to be in love, to be loved, and her future. Everything right now. And to enter into a house in which easily she could have said, as soon as they catch eye of me, as soon as I cross that threshold, I will be escorted out. I will be thrown down in the dirt. So she comes in, and it says that as she stood at his feet behind him, weeping, she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. It's all being poured out. Much like it would have taken for Spikenard to have been converted to an oil, she is crushed in spirit, soul, and body. If you've seen somebody broken, if you've been broken, this is representing that. She's at his feet. It's a position of humility. It's a position of serving. And in this case, it's a position of truly giving her heart to the Lord with tokens such as this costly oil which says, you are my worth. You're my everything. Everything that I could have dreamed for in a man, I found in you. Pretty awesome. But notice this. As all of these things are being poured out, as her very hair is being used, not as a mop, <laughs> but literally as a paintbrush, her tears are washing his feet clean from the dirt from his sandals, from the earth that he's trekked across, and he trekked across many miles. She's literally painting his feet with oil. It's becoming a canvas of love. It's a pretty cool picture. Within that brushstroke of every hair is not only mingled the oil that's being poured out, but also the tears that have flooded, I believe, his feet, enough so to where he says, she's washing my feet and kissing them. One would say, that doesn't sound like a pretty picture. Well, God would say that any time that there's the brokenness of an individual out of a love for him. It is a beautiful picture. We actually call it in titles to songs as Beauty and the Broken. Broken beautifully. It actually describes what happens when there's nothing left in us to give but an act of worship to the Lord who supplies. Do you know that even for this purpose, He's supplying the tears to her tear ducts. He has supplied the hair that has now been let down from her head. See, this would have been extraordinary too, because normally a woman would have her head covered, and she uncovers it to say vulnerably, I'm yours. And this hair, which on one level should be covered is now for you. Brushstrokes from the very hairs that you've numbered from my birth. This really is a conversion moment. Look what happens as it invites criticism. The Pharisee who had invited him, this is verse 39, saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He invites Jesus into the home, and it seems to be on the premise of him being impressed with him as a prophet, an office that would carry, indeed, the mark of God, the ability to do miracles of God, and to voice truth concerning God. But he right now needs to have for himself a turn inside out of what he's seeing a woman before him do. Because he only has a part of Jesus, but not all the part or whole of Jesus. And this is where people are at in today's culture. They have only a partial understanding of the Lord. And in the partial understanding of the Lord, 
They don't understand how he's working in the lives of others who have radically given themselves over fully to the Lord. So what do they do? They stand in judgment. When they are, in fact, the ones who see this work that ought to be judging them, they stand in judgment of the work that indeed is evidence of where they need to be. Some of you today hearing this message, you know where you need to be, but your position doesn't allow you to be that because you look at another person's position and judge them from what it is you've known of them or heard about them or something that you said you would never do. I'm not going to come to God in those terms. I'm not going to humble myself. I'm not going to cry. I have a, a brother who's very dear, and he is one whose testimony hinges on the fact that when he was young, he boasted in the fact, nothing's going to make me cry. Try to make me cry. And he learned how in his discipline to not cry, no matter what, no matter what, he would not cry. His story is funny because he will say that the Lord said to him one day, oh yeah, I can take care of that. And now what's difficult is he can't stop crying when he talks about the Lord. It's an amazing thing. God turned him inside out and the very thing that he said he would not do, he now does as an act of worship. He paints the feet of the Lord with tears that the Lord supplies. It's pretty incredible. He's actually become somewhat influential. There are times when thinking about his act of worship, I have trouble containing myself, which I never had a problem or challenge with in doing. But because it is so genuine, it is so sincere, it's more than contagious, it is absolutely compelling. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I be one who cries with frequency? I do have a problem with the hair because I don't have any. <laughs> that wouldn't quite work. But the picture here is not of what a man or woman can't do. It's with what they've been supplied with that they can do. And the Pharisee right now is now questioning whether he's impressed with Jesus because he's very depressed with the woman, judging her. And this is all in his heart. So therefore, the very thing that he was impressed with Jesus about is now going to come true because Jesus will prophesy what it is he's thinking. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. And that honestly is what many of us need to do. Jesus has something to say to us, but we do quite well ignoring him. Jesus says, I have something to say to you. And Simon rightfully says in this particular case, say it, teacher. The Lord moves into this illustration. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. In essence, Simon, you are judging inaccurately concerning her, but on the merit of this illustration, you are judging rightly. And I say to you, it is the exact judgment that you must render to this woman who's broken before me. She's not broken before you. You're observing what it is she is before me. She's broken before me. She has honored me. She's at my feet. And he goes on to validate this, describing what it is she's doing. He turns to the woman, verse 44, and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair the hair of her head. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, 
But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Verse 49, uh, 48. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 50, he says this to her. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The exercise of her faith was to take herself from what at one time was her vocation and her desecration and to bring herself to the Lord for dedication, devotion, at the cost of being additionally humiliated and marked, embarrassed before God. It is very likely that she was so enthralled with him so passionately impressed with him, so much so that she saw no threat in him, may not have fully understood even what he knew of her, that he would be able to disclose that, to silence the mouth of a judge over her, and to be pronounced forgiven by the judge of the universe. She may not have even understood how much more the Lord loved her than by the conveyance of understanding everything about her. She may have been one who thought, they know what I'm like, but he doesn't. But I'm going to show him who I am, which is a follower and one who needs him. Isn't that cool? The very thing that at times can compel us to come to the Lord is that, well, I need something different in my life. And everything that I've heard about him speaks that that is the difference that I need. And he is the one that's going to change things and who I am. But maybe the other is not necessarily disclosable. But he needed to make that connection with her. And here's why. If you don't know why you need to be forgiven or what you were forgiven from, guess what? Condemnation hangs upon you. He had to pronounce that. He had to pronounce that. Because here's the deal. When we look at the scriptures and we see the beauty of some of these symbolic fragrances, she needed to be hyssopped right now. <laughs> I can explain that. But David identifies it in the scriptures as being cleansed with hyssop. Hyssop was actually used as one of the paintbrushes when the requirement of the Jewish people in the Passover was to have the doorways, the lintels, brushed with the blood of an inspected lamb that would be the Passover. And hyssop was the paintbrush because hyssop speaks of repentance in the area of the sacrifice that Jesus offers. So hyssop is very important. And by the way, it's a lovely fragrance. It belongs actually to the mint family. So the men of the Old Testament, when they used that, it was symbolic of saying, by this herb that when squeezed and converted into an essential oil speaks of repentance, I repent. And so this is one of the things that we do. It's not simply coming to God just because he will receive us. It's actually being willing to have disclosure to God for why we must see him, this transaction. We do it every day. Should do it every day. We do it in church when we remember him at the altar of communion, which we will do. It's important for us to have that as an authentic action of love. So this is one woman, but she's an important woman because she represents really all of us as the body of Christ. I'm a man. Yes, you are a man. And nothing ought to change that, but nothing also ought to prevent you from embracing the fact that in your relationship with Jesus, you have become his bride. Unfortunately, 
culture has tried to make that indistinguishable, blasphemous, but not from God's perspective. This deals with a spiritual sentiment and an authentic work of God to take both men and women that he created as one and to bring her to himself. So in this tenure on earth, we are men. We are men that have been given wives. Our wives represent the women that God has entrusted us with, blessed us with, the things that we see in our wives, the women today, are those very things that we see so beautifully represented here in the scriptures. They are sincere, they are authentic, they are selfless, they are giving, they are beautiful, they are sensitive, they are easily entreated to the perception and the presence of the Lord. They're usually the ones that have their Bibles out before we ever thought about picking one up. They're usually the ones who are at the kitchen tables first. They are at the bedside first or at the end. Somehow, some way, they are pictures of the better spiritual half that we are compelled to be. But God says to us, you're the priests of the home. But what do we see? We see the beautiful work of the prophetic giftings of the woman and the passion of the woman for the Lord God. It's a motivator, isn't it? This woman would have been highly motivational to this Pharisee who would have been at the top tier of his spirituality to look down upon her. And the Lord says, don't look down upon her. You look up to her. She's higher than you are because she's gone lower than you've been. So a beautiful picture. Hyssop is what we were talking about, but Spike Narden, is what is being applied, I believe. Turn, if you will, to first, to the first uh, chapter in the Song of Solomon. And as you know, this is a, it's a love chapter. And so we're going to take a look at where this picture comes from concerning love. So, Song of Solomon. The first of his poetic language. Going to pick it up in verse 12. So it divides itself. A woman speaking romantic language to her beau, to her, to her favored man, and the man speaking poetic language of love to his favored woman. While the king is at his table, the Shulamite woman says, and by the way, she's described as one that would be not comely, among others that are available to the king. She considers herself the least, the least likely to grab his attention, the least likely to earn his love or to find the favor of the wealth of the king's eyes upon her, cherishing her. And that's just like what we needed to see right now. A woman who would have said, I'm the last one Jesus would want to see, is actually on the very early side of his ministry, which is important because we would have to ask ourselves, did she become one of those that followed him literally from that point forward to the cross? There's a mystery here. We're not going to pursue that. But in first, in first light right now in this poetic language, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. She is the fragrance of spikenard to her. Again, the love oil of the woman to her beloved. And he, it indicates, is as myrrh, a bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. So hyssop, the beautiful fragrance of repentance, spikenard, better than love potion number nine. <laughs> and myrrh, and these things were born witness of in our study even of last week. Very important component parts here. 
But then flip over to chapter 4 for another marker and find yourself at verse 13. But I'm going to precede that with 12. This is the king. This is the... Um, this is the Prince Charming of this scripture. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant henna with spikenard. Spikenard and saffron, calamus, and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. He's declaring poetically concerning his love. Pretty awesome. Fruit we see an abundance which speaks again of the woman of God who is filled with the Spirit of God. And again, this mysterious and I think elevated and esteemed oil, this spikenard, this potion which is specifically linked to a woman, to us as his bride. And it is a very engaging oil, a very beautiful scent. It has an earthy quality to it with certainly a fragrance that, that is undeniably fruity. But it's not, it's not where it's like, whew, that's a, that's a lot. It's like, wow, I can't get enough. It has that compelling of a scent. You know, some things are just so scenty that it's like, yeah, I've had enough. That's not the case with the spikenard. It, it has such subtlety to it that it requires just an over and over again whiff in appreciating it. That's what it does. That's actually a picture as well of what love is that God authors. It requires a return and a return and a return and a return. That basically describes how Jesus is. Returning, returning, returning to his love, and ultimately he will return for his love in that poetic language that we see. The other description that we find that is emphasized in the Gospels, two accounts, but the same scenario, is Mark 14. Go ahead and turn there. I told you we would get worked out in the scriptures, so it's happening. Mark 14. Three, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, so this isn't Simon the Pharisee, this is another Simon, Simon the leper. He had problems in life, and the Lord took care of him. He was cleansed. He was hyssoped by the Lord, made well. And as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly it says this, very costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. We weren't given the amount, the value of the other one. We were only told about the woman's character from the judgmental eyes of the Pharisee, but of her perfection from the eyes of the Lord who had forgiven her. But this very likely right now is identifying Mary, who in this sequence from this account is pouring over his head the flask of oil that for her represented the very same thing that the other woman's flask represented to her love, the hope of love, the desire for love, and the surrender to love. Because once this was poured out, the opportunity probably to ever collect as much again would be impossible. It means you're the guy that I'm setting my heart on. 
if I got this wrong and you're not, there goes my life. But I've done it in faith. To the best of my knowledge, I've given the best of everything that someone would find a worthy investment. It is interesting that some men could have found themselves simply attracted to the woman for what historically would have been their obligation to come with a dowry. But a man also will pay to have that woman. It's interesting. It doesn't come for free. There's risk on both sides of it. But there's some who would say, I'll pay for it because what I'm going to pay for it with is going to be of lesser value than what it is I get. They had trouble back then too. <laughs> In disparity. The woman always comes across in Scripture as being the potentially most vulnerable. But the Scriptures would also emphasize that she is most vital. And so in this case, though not necessarily revealed at this time, that spikenard goes over his head. We see that the woman that we've just left early in his ministry has poured it out on his feet. This woman, later on in his ministry, actually within days of him going to the cross, pours it out on his head. And it was an abundance. It was significant. Turn, if you will, now to John chapter 12. Because that's all I wanted to review with you on that. John chapter 12, verse 3. And now we see what you'd call a zoom in of this. It's both in Bethany. And now it seems to be emphasized in terms of the people that are there. That would be Lazarus. And by the way, he's a special guest there because God did a special work in his life. He actually lost his life. We're not told how. And God raised him back to life. That's a resuscitation, but it's a picture of a resurrection. And it's ultimately within days of what Jesus will do on behalf of guys like Lazarus who have gone to the dead and need to be risen from the dead. His life, though, is a life of resuscitation. Even though he was put back together from the compost, if you would, he will still be assigned to die, but his testimony would be extraordinary, for it was validated he died. It was validated he came out of that grave. It was validated, boy, and he stunk too. But Jesus brought him back and gave him an extraordinary testimony. He's here, and it says, They made him supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary, notice this, verse 3, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. What had been done at the beginning of his ministry by a woman who just had a hope that if she got in the door, she could make provision of devotion by just opening up and transacting with tears and her hair, and her life saving at his feet. We see Mary who now moves from his head to his feet, and it shows you again the progression even of love. Not many men will say, so tell me about how you met your wife. How did she become your wife? Well, I saw her feet and I knew she was the one for me. The way that they were painted, the way that they just were, they fit those sandals, I just knew, uh, you never looked into her eyes? Well, I kind of like feet. But you never looked into her eyes? You never saw her eyes? And a woman too. So how did you fall in love with your husband? Well, he wears a pretty good pair of sandals. Actually, it was his tennis shoes. I saw through them, likened myself to his feet. Good jumper, good hiker. I was impressed with his feet. But what you see here is that she moves from the head, meaning that the connection of love happens at this level, the eyes and the mouth. Oh, things change, and that's true. But from God's perspective, that is where love is. It's looking into the eyes of God. It's seeing his face in spite of how others have seen your face. And it's moving from the pinnacle of your faith and connecting with his eyes and your heart connecting with him to where what happens, you become simply this, 
I'm open to serve. John 15, chapter 3, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So the spices now that we've looked at, okay, important, hyssop, repentance, necessary, always necessary, even in relationships of love, that you can say to your beloved, they can say to you, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I messed up. I want to repair the damage done by what I said, what I did, what I didn't do. And that's always one of the things that has to continue to be worked at. But hyssop is a great fragrance maybe for you to get and put inside your cabinet and smell every now and then and understand what its purpose is for. Frankincense, little did we talk about it, but it does represent its important prayer. It was one of the spices that was key and of great value when Jesus was born. It represents a priestly prayer. And it's a beautiful smelling oil as well. Maybe you ought to have one of those in your medicine cabinet to smell, saying, huh, that's a sweet smell. I'm going to pray right now and create the same sweetness in that which I'm going to do as a fragrance to the Lord in what it is I pray for. Myrrh. This is where we come back into because now we take a position where we want to understand the passion that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had. And we actually left off there last week when in the time that Jesus had passed away, that Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, had already presented himself to Pilate to have opportunity to claim the body of the Lord. So in Mark 15, I'm going to go back there to some Again, this picture of love up for us. But in in 15, which, again, a quotation not to be confused with John, was that greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his own life for his friends. This is basically what we see Joseph of Arimathea doing and Nicodemus. Because they, like the Pharisee in the first talk about love with that other woman, they're risking right now their position in being a part of the Sanhedrin because of whom they are pledging their allegiance to and what they're now willing publicly, publicly to go on record for. This is what it means. They're literally going on public record right now of their passion for the Lord, their purpose in life now defined by what they're willing to do. And that is to lay it all down. Their job in their heart is to secure the body of the Lord. And that which they're going to bring is what is called the costly fragrance of myrrh. It's myrrh and it's aloes. And it's probably oil. And in addition, they will also be washing the body of the Lord. They have limited time. But the scriptures tell us that actually the amount that would be brought would be 75 pounds minimum to 100 pounds. This probably would have been greater than half the body weight of the Lord at this time. He's lost a lot of blood. He has lost a lot of sleep. It has had probably a great effect on his physical stamina. But that's a lot. What was contained in the vials, these alabaster flasks by these women, represented a lot to them. What was represented by this, this probably wagon load of myrrh represented wealth. They both represented wealth that each one of them was able to provide as an act of faith and tribute to the Lord. One represented what was coming for the Lord, his death. But the other represented what would be established by the Lord, ultimately in his death. Spikenard, literally one who dies for love. A lot of songs have been written about what one would do in order to validate love. I would die for you. Jesus would say, I can buy that. In fact, I wrote that lyric, John 15. 
but the other would suggest with the myrrh, I will purify you in my love. Here's why I say that. We anchored ourselves in the Psalms and what Jesus also said in our last text, that in quoting, his flesh would see no corruption. It would not be defiled. And the reason that that is important is, were these two, the women who are also going to be on the scene, that means the ones that had been following the Lord, Mary, who had given up her offering of spikenard already, joins with other Marys, or at least two others, a mother and Mary Magdalene. And they're all going to be on the scene. And what we left off with last week is that they're coming with spices. Well, whose spice is what? I believe that this is the picture that we're seeing. The women aren't coming, nor are the men coming with spices to preserve the Lord in putrefaction. They're making statements of devotion. The women are coming to say, we adore you, Jesus. And in an act of faith, even though we may have our doubts arise on us and fears concerning this event, with passion, we bring spikenard with love, hearts that are still beating for you, the love of our life, we bring this to you. When we can, we are coming and we bring this to you. The men, while they are able to bring the myrrh, which is a testimony of what Hebrews will declare as Jesus satisfying the purification through his death of the people of Israel. That was the proclamation. When atonement ultimately was satisfied, it was by the proclamation of the high priests who said, it's finished, it's taken. They're purified. They were purified by the blood, and myrrh signifies the purification of Jesus' life in his death. It's a beautiful picture. But what do we see in the closing of this? Well, there's a couple of things that we see. Once that he had breathed his last, and I did ask you to go to 15, in his breathing of his last, which can be picked up at verse 37, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. The veil of the temple in verse 36 is rent, torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Notice this in verse 40, the observation. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph, and of Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. He's got this beautiful entourage of what you would see as a picture, literally, of the church, both women and beauty and power and passion and men who say, he has purified me. I used to run with that crowd. I used to be on that ship. I used to do this and that bar. And all of a sudden they say, but he has purified me. The statement is important because we can say, did they doubt? And that's why they're coming just to preserve a dead body. I think that it's devotional. It's deeply devotional. I think what they're saying is that we love him and our passion is not turned from him. He still has our heart and our heart beats for him. And we hear his heartbeat for us. My grave has not been given to anyone but him. And as he will be tended and placed in this grave, according to his word, there will be no desecration of his body. This is not to preserve his body from stench. It's to make a statement that his life is now the fragrance. It is the fragrance ultimately of satisfying God's requirement of purification. When a body dies, it moves into mortis. In other words, the body no longer having lifeblood pumped through it moves into the other state of its existence. It moves from a body that requires air. And so we have in us cells that require air and they sustain life. And once they do not get air, they die. And then you have cells that are summoned 
and they're called anabolic. They, they, they move in the area of, of only being able to obtain by eating away at what is their meal. That's why bodies ultimately convert from living tissue to dead and ultimately to dust, which God says we will return to. Aerobic cells, they pass away once there's no more air. Anaerobic, they thrive once there is no air. They come alive. These will not come alive. What do we see in that? When Jesus was on the cross, in that sentence that we just took on, he commends his spirit to God the Father. Commend means, or commit, but in this case, commend, which I think is the better word, means literally to praise the Lord. In his commending his spirit back to the Father, he literally is praising God for the opportunity to have died on behalf of the Father who loves the world and on behalf of his bride whom he has given his life up for. He praises God the Father. Secondly, in commending, a thing to consider is that he presents himself as the Spirit of God is commended back to the Father. He is saying in presentation, I am that priest that can do this. I am the priest who commends, literally, purification upon the people. In atonement, I have made provision. Thirdly, in commending his spirit, he proves that he is God. Why? Because no one at any time professionally who have been involved in executions have ever seen a man die like this. He died with clarity of mind when others are screaming and moaning. He is pronouncing seven blessings and pronouncing forgiveness. And on his last breath, the earth quakes, the graves of the dead open, and eventually they will come out. No one has ever done that before. A centurion had never seen it done before. And he was a professional executor. And he would be coming very shortly a professor of the faith. He would speak as he did on the merit of this man being righteous and of being God. That's what this deep understanding of commending means and why Jesus did it, and why Pilate was amazed. He died that quick. It's because he satisfied everything that six hours on that cross required. Six is the number of man. It wasn't seven hours. It was six hours, because that's what it took for the Son of Man to deal with the sins of men. Three other points to consider right now as we close is that he dismisses the spirit, which means he has dismissed his earthly work, and he transfers that over to whom? You and I, his bride. Because he knows the passion is in us. We have anointed his head with oil and his feet have been washed with our tears and we're ready for service. As brides, the other interesting thing to note, both the women who I would talk to, but also the church, is that Spikenard was a very interesting plant because actually the fragrant part of it is through that which you cannot see. The rhizomes is the roots that go horizontally underneath. And it's actually not the buds or the flowers or the stems on top. It's actually what's underneath, buried in the earth. As a result of that, the cutting of those rhizomes create opportunity for another plant to come up where it will bud, it will blossom, it will have leaves, but it's down beneath the earth that when extracted and cut and pulled out and crushed will be made the fragrance of the essential oil of spikenard. That's why when we have a broken heart or we say poetically, I've been cut, I've been bled out in love, you know, or because I've been hurt in love, I'm not going to give love again. And God say, really? 
That isn't the perspective I have. No one was hurt more than me. And that's why when you look at ultimately the picture of both spikenard, which literally means from the cut of love. In other words, going after love spikenard, the cut of love, the crushing of love, something else buds up. That's why at times people are way too hard on those who have experienced divorce because they don't understand that the divorced person has experienced a deep cut in love. And what they don't understand is this is the restorative work of God to raise up from that cut, that wound, that bleeding out, a brand new work. Way too heavy at times on the consequence of divorce. Less, which I think really needs to be changed, is emphasizing the new work of God in another beautiful act of two people coming together in terms with one where they failed, like the woman in the first part of the chapter, but in now where they are succeeding. Because God says in the next chapter, in the next one, you anoint my head with oil and my feet with gladness. And so it's a beautiful picture. So if so, then how do you mingle us up as far as what this says and what he said and what the men are doing? Well, let me finish with two other points right now. In what he has said on the cross, ultimately, he also declares a grant of his deceased body into literally the hands of those whom he has no opportunity to pick. He grants, in other words, rest to this body and with it as well, the ability to stay in that statement. It's finished. I have no other concern other than what I've done. I believe, as I've said before, funeral plans are necessary. But quite honestly, I don't know who's going to be dealing with my body. A professional agency, perhaps my family, obviously in some capacity. I don't know. And honestly, if I try to plot it out, it probably isn't going to work out the way that I want. Jesus left it in the Father's hands by literally, in what he said, commending his spirit to the Father, the granting of his body to be whatever his Father would have in place for it. But he knew this. If his body wasn't to see corruption, he completely entrusted it to however the Lord wanted to, the Lord God the Father wanted to take his son to satisfy that promise. It wasn't a concern. And as I've said before in the commending of his spirit, he basically was also saying, I deny this body corruption. And therefore, he says to us, the church, I deny my body, you guys, corruption. What does that mean? It means that we live in a depraved world. We live in a sinful world. We are those who can compromise and commit sin. But he says, what I've done in this cross committing my body to the earth and ultimately the resurrection of my body to heaven. Your body will not see corruption because I will present you before my Father without spot or wrinkle. What are we always taking inventory of? The spots and the wrinkles. God says, nope, my death when I sealed it has completely made that moot. I've denied corruption to my body, which is my bride. And when you come to be with me, you will be presented as spotless and without wrinkle. But you know what we're very often doing? We're looking at the spots. I got some of my spots covered with these flowers. My wrinkles couldn't take care of them. I'm hiding kind of some of my wrinkles. But the Lord would say to me as his, as his bride, not even an issue, Rich. To you, not even an issue. It's satisfied. So the women beautifully coming to exercise faith with the fragrance of spikenard and literally saying in it, there's more of us, Jesus. We're just a few. There's more of us. And there were. There apparently were a lot of people and a lot of them in the multitude were women. To be quite honest, they were probably his number one fan club. 
it took the guys a little bit longer to get that. But once the guys get it, the guys go for it. And you can see a dynamic work between both what men finally get and what women knew all along. It's pretty awesome. Closing on the myrrh. The way that myrrh is extracted is very interesting. It actually, at the same time, has to be a plant that is wounded. Spikenard is cut from beneath the surface. As very often we say our emotions are women beneath the surface. Got to get cut there. But boy, when you do, and when you bleed a little bit, it's going to create a harvest of this fragrant, worshipful, essential oil in your life. Men, you're going to have to get a whooping. Essentially, what happens is the wounding of the flesh, is what Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. And so the men very often can say, man, I'm getting whooped by life. We, <laughs> we can say even perhaps by our fathers, whoo, did I get a whooping? <laughs> we can remember the day that we no longer got a whooping because maybe we said, I said it to my dad and I didn't get a whooping. <laughs> did you whoop him? Well, that's another story. But a whooping has been assigned to men. Because in the wound that they receive comes the ministry of the essential oil that they bring, which simply says purified. He does both. Passion from the women, purification from the men. The Lord brings them both into this wonderful, beautiful garden experience in which all are waiting for the promise and none of them were disappointed. Oh, there might have been doubts and griefs. We saw that. But when he appeared to them, that was never an issue anymore. 